Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. of the Athletic Football Show. The Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Great show for you guys today. Shio Kapati is going to be joining us a little bit later to do some postmortems on the playoff teams that lost last weekend. I know Nate and I did a little bit of that on yesterday's show, Monday's show, but we're going to really dig in. Before we do that, though, I'm incredibly excited to have, I'm going to say the legendary Peter King joining us on the show. Peter, thank you so much for doing this. Robert Mays, my former co-worker. How you doing? I'm doing great. I don't know if people remember that. It was so it was 2015 after Grant unfolded. That was Grant unfolded on October 30th. It was a Friday. And my contract was up like a month later. And on Monday, you called me and asked if I wanted to come work with you guys at the MMQB for the rest of the season. I instantly said yes and was very excited about it, but still to this day I am incredibly grateful for that opportunity and for you throwing me a life raft at a time I desperately needed one professionally. So thank you for that. Uh, well, hey, look, it was great to have you because I knew, look, I knew both in a football way and in sort of a a feature, a football feature way. You know, so many of the things that you did for us were so interesting. And now his name is escaping me. Remember the defensive lineman? I think it was a second round pick. He, I know exactly who you're talking about. Who played in New York City. <laughs> who played competitive football in New York City before he went, darn it, what's his name? He went to Illinois. Jihad Ward. It's Jihad yeah, Ward. Yeah, that's right. Jihad Ward. He was, so he played at the Globe Institute of Technology, which was this <laughs> tiny little junior college in New York City. So he was living, it was this very strange program that they had and they would have players come in and they didn't really house them because it was kind of this roughshod program. So he lived in Staten Island and they practiced at this little park in Manhattan. So for that story, after talking to him in Champaign where he was at school, I went to New York and I retraced the entire kind of path and journey he had to take to practice every day. It was like a car ride, a ferry ride. He had to go, they had to go to this storage unit to pick up their pads and then bring them to the field. It was the, what he had to go through every day to even practice was amazing. And then he was a second round pick and he's still in the league. He made a really nice play for the Ravens on set on Sunday against the Titans at the game I was at. So it all comes full circle. Yeah. You know, the other thing I really kind of remember that you did that was so much fun. Um, You wrote a story about, and this was, this is probably one of your last stories for us, because I remember you and I met at the combine in 2016 and I tried to persuade you to stay. Yeah. You didn't, you know, you left, but 
you wrote a really interesting story comparing Jared Goff and Tim Couch. I don't know if you remember it, but the story was really good because I think in history, uh, football history has beaten up Tim Couch in a totally unfair way. Oh, if you listen to Bruce Arians, he thinks that he would have been like an all-time great quarterback if he hadn't gotten beat up. He firmly believes that. To me, Tim Couch and Derek Carr, uh, or David Carr, rather, yeah. are almost the same player. And I feel bad for both of them, uh, but I, I, I especially feel bad for Couch because everybody <clears throat> looks at him, ah, another crappy Browns draft choice. No. No, he wasn't. He was a good draft choice who just happened to get the living tar beat out of him uh, for a long time. But anyway, I know we want to talk about other things, but I like playing the way we were with you. I Trust me, I totally appreciate it. And I did end up leaving, and I ended up leaving because I really wanted to work with my old coworkers and my old friends again. And I enjoyed yeah. that experience. I enjoyed my experience with you. You know, it all, every little stop along the way is important. It all, it yeah, makes us, I agree with it you. takes us it's where good. we are. And I'm, you yeah. know, I wouldn't change the, the route I took for anything. So we're going to get into the coaching carousel and some of these openings and what teams are looking before. Before we do that though, I want to talk to you about the football morning in America column you wrote on Monday, something that if you guys don't read it, I don't know if you're a football fan. It's just part of my Monday routine and should be part of yours as well. So you spent a lot of time in that column this week talking about the Browns and the crazy week that I had or that they had. And I, I talked to a couple people there about what it was like, and, but you got some amazing details. I think my favorite one is the fact that they had to sign Blake Hans because he could drive to Cleveland and that was necessary in the COVID protocols in order for him to play. So the, the number of available players that they could have signed for that offensive line spot was incredibly small because they needed someone who had been in the testing protocol the entire season and was signable, so on a practice squad, and didn't have to get on a plane to drive to Cleveland. Those are the yeah. types of loopholes that exist right now. So among all of the details that you learned about that wild Browns week, which do you think is the one that will stick with you? Well, Blake, Blake Hans is the incredible story because when, okay, you, you saw that, you, you saw that, that basically, um, you, you know, the Browns through their GM, Andrew Barry, uh, calls Joe Douglas, his old friend from the front office of the Eagles and said, Hey, I hate to do this last weekend of the season because you might have them active on Sunday, but we need an offensive lineman. And I like Blake Hans. And we need to sign. He explained why the two offensive line coaches both were out positive with COVID and they were worried that some guys were going to start testing positive. It's amazing that they got through that game against the Steelers, by the way, and had Joel Batonio uh, before he did turn positive. Who knows how he did, but he did. But anyway, the point that I thought was interesting is that they work out all the details. They sign this guy who had tested that morning in Florham Park, New Jersey. He gets in a car at noon. He drives to the Intercontinental Hotel, gets there about 7 o'clock in Cleveland in time for evening meetings with the Browns. And he walks into the elevator and he looks over and he says, hey, Case, Case. And Case Keenum, the backup quarterback, looks at the guy and said, do I know you? And the previous year in training camp in Washington, Case Keenum had been the starting quarterback, 
Blake Hance had been an undrafted free agent guy who was just trying to make the practice squad. And he said, it's Blake, Blake Hance. And he goes, oh, my God. He said, what are you doing here? He goes, that's incredible. I'm on the team. (laughs) (laughs) And then he played. And then he had to play 14 snaps, which is just. Well, actually, he didn't play against the Steelers in the regular season finale. But then in the playoffs, he had to play. In the playoff game, he played 15 snaps. And imagine walking in totally cold on a freezing (laughs) night in Pittsburgh. And you and you 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 run onto the field, and you line up at left guard, and you look across the way, and there's Cam Hayward. All he's done is make four Pro Bowls and been All Pro twice. So your first snap in the NFL, you got to block Cam Hayward. And good for Blake Hans. He's just not a cool story that Baker Mayfield calls out at the end of the game. He said he played 15 snaps, allowed no sacks and no quarterback hits. So I talked to Andrew Barry after the game, and as euphoric and excited as he was <laughs> about winning this game, he just was over the moon for Blake Hans. So anyway, I don't know. It's those tiny little moments are amazing. As you know, as you know, there are a lot of times in this business where you invest some time in a story that craps out, and I had an eighty-five percent chance that story was not going to work. But you know what? I just thought, hey, if it does work, when I started finding out things like that, if it does work, I said, holy crap, this is going to be pretty cool. So I got lucky, I, you know. But, but again, sometimes you make your own luck. And I could have said, ah, the Browns will never win that game. But I didn't. I just said, I, I, I'm not saying I was rooting for them to win the game, but I was pretty happy when they did, quite honestly. Trust me, I'm in the same boat. I had something run. I have something running. It'll be today. It'll run on Wednesday. That if a certain team hadn't won last week, we wouldn't have been able to do it. So I completely understand. <laughs> it's and it's funny that drive from Florham Park to Cleveland. I'm sure you know it well because that is a very familiar training camp drive. Because there's not a lot between Cleveland and the Jets. So when you're doing your tour, which I've done before. That's one I've gotten to know is like that Eastern drive to Cleveland is one that we've all had to do. So good for Blake Hans. He's an NFL writer now. It was cool. All right. Let's get to a bit of coaching news I did not expect to have to talk about today. When we decided to do this, this was not on my original to do. And now it has to be. The Philadelphia Eagles move on from Doug Peterson. And a bit of a surprising twist, I think, considering the success he had there. The guy's got a stadium outside. I thought they might decide to keep him and just see if they could work through some of this stuff. They eventually decide it's not worth it. This is irreparable. It's time to move on. In your mind, based on the conversations you've had and your reading of the situation, what do you think ultimately led to this decision in Philadelphia? You know, I think there was a couple of things. Um, Jeff Lurie and Howie Roseman both thought that um, the Philadelphia Eagles had a chance to set themselves up for a long time to be good after they won the Super Bowl. And at the end of this year, two things happened. Jeff Lurie looked up and said, we're four games under 500 since we had the greatest win in Eagles history. And that is not satisfactory with the money we spent or we have spent. Number two, and I think this was really important to the to the thing. I don't, I, I mean, Robert, I don't know, and I'm not sure that we're ever going to know. 
But I think the Nate Sudfeld decision played a factor in what Jeffrey Lurie did. I just do. Because, you know, in that game, they had a chance to win a game against a division rival. And even though the game meant nothing to the Eagles in terms of the standings, you know, I don't think you ever want to set an example for your team that I want to get a loyal soldier, our third string quarterback, some snaps. You can't defend that. You simply can't. And Doug Peterson has tried to defend it a bunch of times. It's indefensible. You should not be uh, playing with the standings, playing with what I think is an unofficial honor code among coaches and teams that there's two teams right there that whoever wins that game, uh, one team's going to the playoffs and one isn't. And for you to, and again, Doug Peterson will deny this. And I, he didn't throw the game. He significantly lessened his chances of winning the game. Because, Robert, you saw it. I know late Nate Sudfeld a little bit, but the fact, and I like him, but the fact is he looked like a JV player in a high school varsity championship game. And he didn't belong. He did not belong in that game. And I think that had something to do with it. But the larger thing is uh, it, it, we haven't even mentioned the fact that Carson Wentz wants out. And as Howie Roseman said in his postseason press conference, Carson Wentz is like the fingers on my hand. I can't imagine me, you know, getting up in the morning without Carson Wentz as my quarterback for the next 10, 12 years. And the contract would dictate that. I mean, that's, I mean, those, there's connected. Yeah, that, I, I think those three things really bug Jeffrey Lurie, but do not uh, eliminate what happened in that last game of the year. It was, it was, it was a total embarrassment. You know, when Chris Collinsworth, who loves every coach, when Chris Collinsworth says, and I quote, I could not do what the Philadelphia Eagles did in this game in a very somber way. What's he saying? He's saying Doug Peterson just made one of the most idiotic moves I've ever seen. Anyway. I think that I had a conversation with somebody today who was somewhat familiar with the situation. And I think the entire thing is kind of a lesson in how fragile a coaching staff is and how fragile a just the the formula and like the alchemy of building the right staff and building the right offenses. I think in 2017, one of the strengths of that team was the combination of voices in that room with Doug and with Frank Reich and with John Filippo and the way they worked together. And yeah. how even though they were disparate minds and they were collaborating, they were all moving in the same direction. Over the last couple of years, against Doug Peterson's will at times, there's been a lot of shuffling among that offensive coaching staff. And you have guys now in there like Marty Morningwig and Rich Scangarello who come from disparate backgrounds and have not been there with them forever. And now you have all of these different voices in the room chirping. And Doug Peterson was not able to rise above those voices and be kind of the singular one for that organization and for that offense. And it felt like a hodgepodge plan. It felt like nothing that ever was distilled into, this is what we want to do. This is who we want to be. This is our vision for this. It was never streamlined. And I think you could see on the field the effect of all of that shattering and all of those different voices coming from different directions. Yeah, I think that's a that's an excellent point. The coaching staff point is so incredibly interesting 
and so true. And I want to tell you a story. Every year after the Super Bowl, I try to write a story that is um, that's going to take something memorable from the game, whether it's a play, whether it's a player, whatever. The year Denver won, I did something with Von Miller. I've done Eli Manning after he beat uh, Tom Brady, and but but and I went to Brady's uh, place in Montana one year to do it after he had the big comeback against the Falcons. So every year I try to pick out something that is major important in the game. Okay. And I'll tell you what I picked up out of the Super Bowl. Okay. And I found this out after the game. Okay. Do you remember the, the winning touchdown pass in the game? Zach Ertz caught an 11 yard pass from Nick Foles. He was split out to the left side and he ran a little yes, slant. He was the yeah. only one split out to the left side. And, and what I, what I found out after the game is that this is this is what exactly what you're talking about on a coaching staff that works well together. Here's exactly what happened. Mike Groh, who was the receivers coach, when when they left Philadelphia, Doug Peterson talked to the assistant coaching staff before they got on the plane and he said, "Just because we have the game plan in, with our 181 offensive plays. Just because we have that in, it doesn't mean that we're done. I want you guys to spend Monday night in Minneapolis looking for new plays that we can use. You know, and and so what what Mike Groh did, he buried himself at the Radisson Hotel at the Mall of America where the bike <laughs> the uh, uh, Eagles were staying on Monday night and he calls Frank Reich Tuesday morning or he talks to him and he goes, I think I got to play. And the play essentially would capitalize on how new England would play defense. When there were four receivers on one side of the field, one of whom was coming in motion to that side of the field. They had watched a lot of new England tape and give massive credit to pro football focus. Because uh, Mike Groh told me that he got this because he studied the pro football focus tendencies of the New England secondary. And they found out that if you send a back in motion, that you are going to create havoc in that secondary because they will not know if they should leave the single receiver alone or if that single receiver should have a guy doubling potentially over the top like Deron Harmon. So what they did was they called this play at the most crucial time of the game. Doug Peterson loved it. Frank Reich loved it. Mike Groh brought this play into the game plan. Mike Groh, by the way, who has been fired since. Okay. Yeah. And so and he was one of those guys that I'm sure Doug wanted to keep. And yes. there were voices telling him that he needed to go. And now he's back in Indianapolis with Frank Reich. Yeah. And so what, what it all says to me, and, and obviously Zach Ertz is singled on Devin McCourty. He beats Devin McCourty and he catches the touchdown pass that needs to be affirmed by review, but he catches the touchdown pass that gave them a 38, 33 lead. And, you know, they won the game 41, 33. And all I'm saying about that is when I met 
Saturday morning after the game in Doug Peterson's office, Frank Wright, Mike Grow, Doug Peterson. There was this simpatico, and yeah. there was this, there was this you finishing each other's sentences part of that that hour and a half that I spent. And when I walked out of there, I was so I was high, just so <laughs> excited because I knew that I had an incredible story that nobody knew. But the point is, the point is. Just think of all the things that have changed in the 35 months since that day. You know, Frank Reich is gone. Mike Groh is gone. Carson Wentz wants out. Nothing is the same. Nothing. Everything is different on your team. And so Jeffrey Lurie kind of looks at that and says, all right, let's continue it. And we might as well just finish blowing it up. That team was so magical in so many ways. I remember being around that team. I remember they had that feeling where there was just something that clicked. And they bottled it up, and I think that letting Frank, not letting Frank Reich go, but losing Frank Reich because that's what happens when you're successful. I think that took the cork out of the bottle, and I think that they were never able to get it back it, it was, for whatever reason. Yeah. The magic just drifted out, and they were never able to bottle it again. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, Peter, I want to get into the Texans situation here because it's been a nonstop throw ride of comments and news and everything else. Today, Andre Johnson chipped in, which I think when you've lost Andre Johnson, that's when you know you have a problem because he's not exactly a vocal presence. He chimed in, said Deshaun Watson should hold his ground, that this organization wastes players. So I think that they're losing even people who you would think would be ardent supporters of what's going on in Houston. They hire Frank Nick Casario, and I I was on a panel with Nick Casario once. I, I've you know I've talked to him at times before. I think he's a very smart guy. I think he could do well. I think the process is the concern that some people have there. And now, speaking of process, they've requested to talk to Eric Bieniemy about their head coaching job, but can't do it until January 25th because of the tampering rules. It just feels like there are so many crossed wires here. So what is your just overall opinion of them eventually landing on Casario and where you think the tenor of this head coach search is right now with all of the unrest that seems to be happening there in Houston? You know, let's go back to the Sports Illustrated story uh, by Jenny Brentis and, and Greg Bishop on Jack Easterby whatever, a month or so ago. And what I found very, very telling about that story is that the either the lawyers or somebody with the Houston Texans did not want Jack Easterby to respond to the Chargers 
the charges that Sports Illustrated had. So they ran the story. And I always think to myself, when you don't respond, it's your fault to an ugly story. That story was an ugly story. And so I just preface that by saying that, look, at some point after the hiring goes, I will be inordinately surprised if Jack Easterby isn't the sacrificial front office lamb in Houston. And, you know, you don't leave a guy hanging out to dry the way they have with Easterby. Uh, and, and look, who, look I'm, I, I don't really know whose fault everything is. Okay, I don't. There's a lot of fault to go around. And my only point about the Easter Bee deal and, and all of that is that Texans had it coming. You know, they, uh, I mean, firing Amy Palsic might be the most lame brain thing of everything that happened there. You know, and, you know, so anyway, my only point is they deserve what they're getting. And you're right. Uh, Andre Johnson is has been has is an employee of the Houston Texans, probably not for long, but is an employee of the Houston Texans is basically a community ambassador. And, you know, it's amazing to me that they have they have gotten everybody in the community to hate who they are. I know. And so I think what they have to do, I think Nick Casario, look, he's been on the job for 10 minutes. And so, I I, you know, it's hard to say, okay, you've got to go do this right now. Just let him understand the situation first. And then let's give the, uh, the raging forest fire that is Deshaun Watson right now. Let's give that a few weeks to simmer down. And then very quietly on February 15th or whenever it is, uh, arrange either a meeting or a Zoom call so that Nick Casario can hear off the record, nobody telling you, Nick Casario and whoever the new coach is can just hear out Deshaun Watson and they can try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But I think it's going to be hard. It's amazing that, you know, obviously when you take over a general manager job or even a head coaching job, it's probably because there are some cracks in the foundation for the house you're moving into. But not often are the cracks in the foundation and the house is engulfed in flames the way that it is right now. I mean, the fact that they're having to spray this thing with the hose and that's what he's dealing with on day one, that's a high bar that you have to clear. And so they requested to to interview Biennemi. And I wanted to ask you about him because obviously he's been a name that's on everybody's lips because of the lack of opportunities that he's gotten over the last couple of years compared to what the previous Chiefs offensive coordinators were able to do, Doug Peterson included. And now we have this wave of interviews and hires and everything else. And it does feel like we're trending toward this possibly happening again based on some of the conversations I've had with people, some of the things I've read from you. Where do you think the league stands on Eric Bieniemy and where he falls in this hierarchy of potential hires within this cycle? This reminds me of the year that uh, Michael Sam was going into the draft and the league was petrified that nobody would draft the SEC Defensive Player of the Year and also the man who would come out as gay. Um, It just reminds me a lot of that. There are people in the NFL office who are just praying that Eric Bieniemy gets one of these jobs. 
There's seven jobs now. Um, there might be an eighth, but I doubt it. Seven jobs now. And uh, I think when you look at this situation uh, and you look at uh, you look at it any way you would you would like to, but if, if you if you just try to look at it kind of ra- kind of rationally, Doug Peterson is the uh, you know top assistant to Andy Reid, and he's hired away and gets a job as the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. Next in line is Matt Nagy. Matt Nagy does a good job. He gets a head coaching job with the Chicago Bears. Now, the one thing both those guys have in common with an asterisk is like Eric Bieniemy, they didn't call plays either. Now, late in his tenure, for like the last month, uh, uh, Matt Nagy did because the Chiefs were in a gigantic offensive slump. So Andy Reid threw his hands in the air and said, you try it. My, I, I stink right now. So, but it, it might have been four or five games. I don't even remember, but it wasn't much. And so now here we have the next offensive coordinator been in place uh, basically for the last three seasons. And the logic says that if you did it with Doug Peterson, one Andy Reid disciple, you did it with Matt Nagy, another Andy Reid disciple. Here's the next guy in line. Patrick Mahomes' biggest ally in the building. Uh, Loves him. Has told Deshaun Watson, this is the guy you want as your head coach. And so what happens, you know, because of a few skeletons in his closet when he was a, a kid in college at, uh, at Colorado. Um, and again, everything should be investigated, but nothing really that rises to anything that would not have me uh, want to hire a guy. And then he's got a, a fairly normal coaching career, but it just really seems like if he doesn't get a job, there are going to be, and I'm not saying there will be players go on strike or anything like that, but it really seems to me that there's going to be some very angry players. I think Troy Vincent, by the way, will go absolutely ballistic. He'll go crazy if Eric B. Enemy doesn't get a job, but we'll see what happens. I just don't hear his name that much. That's all. I, I feel the same way. And I, it, it just really does feel like it's, it's trending that direction outside of his, his, his background. And you, know, you guys can look it up. There are some, some minor, you know, kind of transgressions, whether it was at the security guard while he was at Colorado and then some of the other things while he was a coach there. I mean, that's obviously in, in his history, but outside of that, is there anything about what he is now? compared to some of these other candidates, whether his ability to oversee an offense, the fact that he hasn't coached quarterbacks in the same way that some of these other white coaches have. What is the reason that you think outside of the background that teams might be reticent about giving him that chance compared to some of the other guys that are available? All I, all I can think is because he's 51 years old, I, sure. you know, and all, and you know, and Brandon Staley's 38. Uh, Joe Brady is what? 31. It's not as exciting. It's not splashy in the same way. I don't have a good logical reason. Maybe he doesn't win the press conference. I don't know. But I think it's all a bunch of excuses myself. Speaking of splashy potential hires, how real do you think this Urban Meyer and Jacksonville noise is? And what do you think are what do you think the drawbacks are? Because I think that's the biggest thing. Obviously, the positives are there. When you consider the program building that he's done, what he's done as an offensive coach, the amount of winning that he's done, I think all of that is a given. 
But I also think that he's left several jobs at younger ages than he is now. And this is a long road in Jacksonville. So do you think this is a realistic possibility? And what do you think the pro and con list that the Jags are going through in their mind consists of? I think it's a realistic possibility. Yes. I mean, um, as far as the pro and cons of what they're going through, they'd be incredibly irresponsible if they were not totally dug in on, is this the second coming of Nick Saban in Miami? I mean, what's the difference really between Nick Saban and Urban Meyer? Uh, Both incredible program builders of, you know, every year they're 11 and one or whatever. Yeah. Just a ridiculous record. Um, I mean, Urban Meyer coached for, I think, 17 years and lost 33 or 34 games. (laughs) So, I mean, it's, he's obviously great. He's a good offensive mind. He's an excellent uh, program builder. Excellent. But I would just ask, here's a guy who quit his job at age 45, at age 46, at age 54. And there was some, almost every time there was this some, he has got some health issues, uh, you know, mental fatigue, all this sort of stuff. What do you think is going to happen when you go to a team? I don't care if you draft Trevor Lawrence, uh, Jerry Rice, uh, Aaron Donald and uh, and Lawrence Taylor in the first year. I don't care. You're going to lose a lot of games. That's just the way it is. That's life. When you come to a lousy team, a team that in the last three years has lost 75% of its games. He's never lost in college sports. Never. His worst record, I think, was, what, seven and five. And then he never lost more than three games in any other year in 17 years. It's just, you know. So my question is, is Urban Meyer going to be like Nick Saban was in 2006 when after going 15 and 17 in the first two years of a five-year contract, he calls up Wayne Huizenga and says, I just can't do it. I want to go back to college. I mean, I, I don't know. But there is ample evidence, ample evidence that I would be concerned about how long Urban Meyer would last once the losing started. It's interesting because I think the college coach route can be difficult, and especially when you empower a college coach in the way that, let's say, the Eagles did with Chip Kelly. And the fact that he was, I would assume, in a similar role to the one Urban Meyer would fill, where he is the kind of czar of the Jacksonville Jaguars. He has, say, over the 53, he's the head coach, all of that. The nice part, though, is that I think the best scenario for a coach like that to succeed is with a blank slate. And that's what they have in Jacksonville. It's not as if it's this veteran-laden roster where he's taken over all of these 28-year-old guys on second contracts. You have a few offensive linemen there that are on those second deals, you know, uh, Brandon Linder, guys like that, and then Miles Jack on defense. That's it. Miles Jack is great. I think anybody would love to build a defense around him. And so that's it. Outside of that, you have a bunch of guys you drafted this year, whether it's LaVisca Chenault, you know, DJ Chark's in his third year, but he's still a young guy. James Robinson is a rookie this year. You have two first-round picks this season, an extra second-round pick, and you're about to draft the quarterback number one overall. You have a total starting over blank slate roster with a guy who is used to dealing with young talent. And I think that's an argument in their favor, how long he's willing to let that stuff gestate 
and work through having that young roster is an entirely different conversation. I mean, what happens? You know, he's he probably mentally is ready to go five and eleven. You know, in his first year. Okay, and you know, your young quarterback is 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 you know getting his reps and everything. So, but now we enter year two, and now there's expectations as there are with the Chargers and Justin Herbert. And, you know, assuming that Joe Burrow can come back on time, there's expectations. Okay. But I, I, I guess I just look at this and say, I, I, and look, I could be proven totally wrong. And if I am dig up this video and I'll say, Hey, I was totally or this audio <laughs> and I really, and I'll say, Hey, I was totally wrong. I, cause I don't know urban Meyer. I do not know urban Meyer. So I can't, I, I have no inside information at all. None. I am just looking at this from the outside and I'm essentially saying this hire would scare me. Let's get to some of the other guys who are candidates for these jobs and the list that's been kicked around, which become pretty familiar here. Would you say that Arthur Smith is near the top of this pecking order considering he's gotten looks at literally every single one of the openings that is available right now? If I would look at it right now, uh, Robert, I think Arthur Smith and Robert Sala sit above all, okay? And essentially, when you say they sit above all, what I mean essentially is that uh, there's not only the most buzz about them, but you can't really find a lot negative about Robert Sala. You can't find a lot negative about Arthur Smith. And look, you don't know what's going to happen when they have to take over a team. And I and I I will say this, I don't know Robert Sala. I've never I feel bad about saying this, but I've never had a conversation with him. That's that is bad on me. But I do know Arthur Smith some. And anybody who talks to him at some length uh will say this guy's got it going on. He 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 knows how he's going to know how to build a program and if he gets a chance I think he'll do a pretty good job. I think those two guys are above all. On the next level, I think you start looking at people like Joe Brady. Um, and 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 again, I, I think you look at Brandon Staley if, if, what happens if the Rams shock the Packers this weekend? I, you know, in my, my feeling is if that happens, it is my, my opinion uh, and if they really shut down Aaron Rodgers, if that happens, my opinion is Sean McVay better start looking for a new defensive coordinator because I think then, uh, and look, I don't think this is likely. If I had to go to Vegas and bet on one game this weekend, one team this weekend, <laughs> I'd probably bet on the Packers. But but be that as it may, Brandon Staley has been tremendous. So I'd put him on the next level. But But I guess I look at this thing and say, I think there's only two guys when I look at it who I'm pretty sure are going to get jobs. The Brandon Staley thing is interesting. I think that even though he's a first-year coordinator, I'm really interested in the backlog of connections that he has at the college level because he's been around for a while. He was with Fangio for a couple of years, and now he's in his first year. And the amount of time he spent in college and some of the connections he has there, I think he could put together an interesting staff with some maybe unconventional choices the same way he was an unconventional choice for the Rams defensive coordinator job. The Joe Brady thing, yeah. 
he's been a, an NFL coordinator for a year, and he was a defensive coordinator in college or offensive coordinator in college for a year. Outside of that, he wasn't even a position coach. So the one kind of ba- one thing that people might be worrying about with him is what does his Rolodex look like to build a staff? Because right. with McVay, McVay was a coordinator for a couple of years in Washington, and he was a position coach for a couple of years longer than that in Washington. And McVay hit 500-foot home runs with the two hires you need to kill if you're a young play-calling head coach. He brought in Wade Phillips as his defensive coordinator to essentially do that side of the ball. That's you. And Aaron Cromer is his offensive line coach who had been around forever and is somebody who can just take care of the run game and do that stuff. Those two hires were huge. Is Joe Brady going to be able to find guys like that that are pillars of his staff with the amount of time he's spent in the league? So when you have conversations about people with Brady, what do you think worries people about giving him that job after this short of a track record within the league? Two things. You just said the first one, and I totally agree with you. Um, the second one, which I find very interesting, and, and can I can I make one other point about, about what, what, what you just said about that? There's very little and little paid attention to, which is a horrible phraseology, by someone who works in writing sentences, <laughs> but, but, but this didn't get much attention. Jake Peets, the quarterback coach of the Carolina Panthers left Carolina to become, I guess the offensive coordinator, if that's what it's called at LSU. Yep. Now you say to yourself, Hmm, a declining program under some heat, maybe we'll get some NCAA heat and a declining program. They're still top 10, obviously. But bad year for him. Who knows? I don't know what the future holds. But, but okay. And he left a place that either one of two things. He loves Joe Brady. And he, loves, he loved working with Joe Brady this year. So he had to figure one of two things. One, Joe Brady's not going to get a job. And so I will be the quarterback coach again next year. Is it better for me to be the quarterback coach here? or at a very high-profile job, which has been a jumping-off point for some people at LSU, should I be the offensive coordinator? And the other thing that he he must have been thinking is that, um, okay, uh, if, if, if he doesn't leave, would he take me with him if he gets a head coaching job? And so my feeling is when I look at both of those things, Jake Peets probably thought at the end of the day, whatever happened, he was going to be the quarterback coach of the Carolina Panthers and would not have been, if for instance, uh, Joe Brady got a job that he probably was not going to make him his offensive coordinator. That's just my guess. And I don't know, but I just look at it. That's one thing. And I think the second thing is uh, you've, you've got to, it's one thing to be Sean McVay and to be Mr. Charisma and, and all that that's stuff. Exactly and right. to be a coordinator for three years, as young as he was, he was coordinator for three years. So it's one thing to say all that. And then when you look at it, and this is sort of the way I look at it, man, Joe Brady is so young. You're right. Two years ago, two years ago, uh, he's offensive assistant. He doesn't even have a position with the New Orleans Saints. So I don't know. I think you speak truth. I think the charisma thing is underrated when it comes to luring established coaches 
to come in and be a part of your staff. And I, I really do think that matters. And I think that Sean McVay being this kind of force in that way and having this gravitational pull allowed him to lure some established coaches and to have a great staff from the start. Even somebody like Matt LaFleur, who had worked with Matt Ryan and had just come off of being the quarterback's coach for an MVP winning quarterback, ended up going to Los Angeles and being the offensive coordinator for the Rams on that staff. They had a fantastic coaching staff to help not prop Sean McVay up, but to really allow them to hit the ground running immediately. And I think that matters. Even somebody like Sean McDermott had trouble building his staff in Buffalo right away. And they really got lucky by landing Brian Dable in that second season and kind of being able to shape things there. If you look at the amount of turnover the Bills had, from 2017 to 2018, it was considerable. They had Ken Dorsey come in and eventually be their quarterback coach last season, and then they had Dable come in and be their offensive coordinator. These are the little tiny things that I don't think I would have appreciated five years ago that I've really started to think about more. And I think what Joe Brady... Staff matters in a big way. I really agree. And I think that's what Joe Brady, that's going to be the stuff that people think about. It's really a matter of if you're weighing scheme versus the voice in the building. And I don't know Joe Brady. He might be a, a more a bigger presence than I, I think he is. But I know that Sean McVay is. And I think that's the question. How much does scheme matter? And how much does being that voice at the top of an entire organization matter? And I think that's what teams are going to have to be asking themselves. And about does it also matter? Think about one other thing. Does it also matter that Teddy Bridgewater had a C year? Maybe even a C minus year. Yeah, he wasn't very good. And if Joe Brady is supposed to be so great with quarterbacks like he was with Joe Burrow at LSU, uh, he didn't show it this year. Lot of things to consider. Peter, you have to go. I really, really appreciate the time. It's always so good to chat with you. And I know it's a busy time of year. So thank you very much for the time. And I'm sure we'll catch up at some point. Hey, you're welcome, Robert. It was great. Please call anytime and let's stay in touch. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right. Very excited to welcome our old friend, Shio Kapati, to the show. Shio, how you doing, bud? Doing well. We get, we're we in that mix of off-season stuff and playoff teams and everything, so this is a hot spot. Got to balance it. <laughs> That's why I love the Wednesday show, because it removes us from the rigors of the calendar. And we can kind of step back and do some house cleaning. That's exactly what this show is for. So Nate and I got into a little bit of this on Sunday's show as we went through the games. But I purposefully didn't go too far down the road with any of those teams because I knew I wanted to do something like this. And I want to just talk about where all six teams that lost last weekend are right now and what their immediate and even long-term future might look like. So let's start with the Seahawks, a team that you have covered in the past and also, I think, has more to dig through than some of these other teams. So Nate and I on Sunday's show talked about, I said, I thought the lessons that Pete Carroll learned from the second half of the season would shape what this team looked like for the next several years. It took about 10 hours And Pete came out and said the lesson he learned is they needed to run the ball more, which is horrifying, but also understandable. So here's a quote from him directly, according to Joe Fan from NBC. We need to run the ball with direction and focus and style that allows us to dictate the game. Frankly, I'd like to not play against two deep looks all all season long next year. We have to be able to get that done. I would argue that running because teams are playing two high safeties against you does mean that you're not dictating the game. It means that teams are dictating the game to you. Anyway, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> so this it's been a news-filled week with Pete Carroll saying stuff like that. John Schneider gets his extension today, which will have him there for the long term. There were some questions about whether he would want to move on and be in charge of the 53 somewhere. That's no longer a consideration. So when you think about just where this team is at the end of this season, where they need to go, and the familiarity you have with how steadfast they are in some of these beliefs, what do you think are the questions that the Seahawks feel like they need to answer moving into 2021? I feel like this has become an annual 
tradition, really. So you know, true. It's, it's like the Seahawks have a pretty good season. They lose it in the playoffs in a game that frustrates the entire fan base, Seahawks Twitter, the coaching staff, whatever the case. And then it's just like, and then everyone moves to this grand, like, blow it all up. They got to do this, this, and this. I mean, they had, a, they had a really good season. You know, like if you look at any, any metric, they were very good in the regular season. They won, what, 12 games. They win the division. This wasn't like winning a bunch of one-score games. You know, I think they were top five in DVOA. So Seahawks fans, if you're lit, just take a deep breath. All right. It's still, you know, you're, you're still going to be in the mix up. You know, I thought they made a big step in the right direction this year. You know, obviously there was all the let Russ cook stuff. And I, I really look at it the second half of the season, the I'm offense. Yeah, there you go. The offense yeah. was, so it was not the same, but you know, the numbers I've looked at, it's not like all of a sudden they're running the ball on first and second down. I mean, they definitely needed to find more answers on offense. And I wonder if the words that Pete Carroll, you know, what you just said there, if that's taken a little bit, like, I don't look at that, like they're going to revert to two years ago or three years ago or whatever. I think every NFL coach, every NFL offensive coach you talk to would say when the other team is playing with two deep safeties, we need to be able to gash them in the run game. So I don't think that's crazy. What what you said is true. You know, certainly you don't want them to just be able to take you out of what you're doing, but they obviously needed answers against split safety looks, whether that was a more quick game, whether that was Russell Wilson reading it out and taking what the defense was giving him and stringing together long drives because they were over-reliant on the downfield passing game, whether that was running the ball or more RPOs or or whatever you want want to say there. But uh, I think they weren't used to defenses playing them that way because of what their philosophy has been for, you know, seven, eight years since Pete Carroll got there. And so I, I do think they need to adjust uh, there for sure. I'll be curious. And I, and I agree with you. I think that what he said makes sense. I just think it's really funny that that's his first <laughs> response to all of this. So I think that, you know, I said this to Nate and I firmly believe it. Saying we need to run the ball a little bit more and maybe let's introduce some quick game and stuff like that. Those are little tiny tweaks. I think they really need to sit down and have a deep conversation about what they want to accomplish offensively and how they can do it. And I don't know if keeping Brian Schottenheimer and saying, if we just kind of change some of these dials, we'll find the answers. I think it might be deeper than that. If you look at some of the underlying numbers from what they did and some of Russell Wilson's strengths, Russell Wilson's strengths and weaknesses, I thought that Seth Galina wrote a really good piece today on PFF about the type of quarterback that Russell Wilson is. He struggles to read stuff out in the middle of the field. He really does, and he's a smaller player, and that's not surprising. And if you look at some of the other quarterbacks who are his size within the league and some of the ways they've gotten around that, I think Baker Mayfield is a perfect example. Baker Mayfield also struggles to read stuff out over the middle of the field in quick game because he can't see. The Browns have tailored an offense that moves his launch point purposefully to kind of negate that issue. I think that the Seahawks really need to consider figuring out ways to build the offense around Russell Wilson in ways that suit his strengths, but also suit them. And I think that is play action and moving the pocket. And obviously, I think I'm like a broken record and I'm also a caricature of myself at this point (laughs) saying more teams should use more play action. But I think that he's the best downfield passer arguably in the league. Finding ways to move those launch points to allow him to be a downfield passer and also not forcing him to play over the middle of the field and things like that. I just think there's a way to do that that is a substantial departure from the way they've played offense over the last couple of years. They were 20... He Russell Wilson, over the second half of the season, 
I think was 21st in play action rate in the NFL. That doesn't make any sense when you consider what real, what his strengths are as a quarterback and what he does well. They also were in shotgun on 70% of their snaps, which is above league average. I would love to see them in more of an under center, move the quarterback, play action, boot type offense. Because even though I think that suits everyone, I really think it suits what Russell Wilson does well and kind of glosses over the things he doesn't do very well. Yeah, and obviously that would help the the offensive line also. Their, their exactly. strength that receiver is downfield. So that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it goes to the, this bigger kind of question, you know, when you talk about Brian Schottenheimer, and like I feel like this was going on for years with Bevel and now Schottenheimer, and it gets to the, you just watch the Seahawks and you, for as good as the numbers are and as good as the efficiency is and as much success as they've had, you always watch them and wonder, is this the, you know, 99th percentile version of what this offense could look like with the quarterback they have. That's just the fact of the matter. Anyone watching them, I think you have to think that you don't watch that offense and say, wow, uh, you know, they're really helping out the quarterback and they're maximizing his strengths and they're masking his weaknesses and the same with everything else on the roster. And like you said, there are other offenses you look at and you say, they're absolutely doing that. You know, the Tennessee Titans, right? You watch them every week and you say, uh, all right, and I know we're going to talk about them, but you watch them every week and you say they are maximizing the talent on this roster. This scheme is perfectly suited for the players they have. Like if you swapped, you know, Arthur Smith for another coordinator this year, would it be better? The answer is no. Well, you know, with Bevel, uh, I thought Bevel was maybe a little bit uh, underrated. I thought he was okay. With Schottenheimer, with his track record, you kind of look at it and say, it it could get a lot more interesting, you know, if, if they had someone else in there. Now I will say, from having covered that team for two years, it's not the easiest offensive coordinator job because you do have the defensive head coach and he's telling you how to play and he's telling you how he wants to play. And if you have a game with three turnovers, guess what? That's going to be a long (laughs) uh, flight home or a long Monday morning because that is everything to him. I mean, they could be fluky turnovers. They could be deflected passes. The snap could have gone over Russell Wilson's head. It doesn't matter. If you are turning the ball over, you are going to hear about it. So like all those questions, I, I don't know if I have like a great point to make with that, but those are just kind of all the factors when you look at their offense and try to figure out, well, what could they be going forward? What are they going to be going forward? And I think the reason it's such an important consideration is because there aren't, there's not help coming. This team does not have resources. They're out two first round picks in the Jamal Adams trade. They have $17 million in cap space. Guys like KJ Wright are free agents. Shaq Griffin is a free agent. They are not in a position to add a bunch of talent to this team. And also, this is the moment where when you use your first round picks on low ceiling players, you find out what that means. LJ Collier was last among the nine regular defensive linemen on the Seahawks in pressures this season. Wow. He was a first round pick two years ago. Jordan Brooks is a third linebacker who now becomes your second linebacker if KJ Wright goes away. As a first round pick, that's the impact of that is going to be fairly minimal. Okay, Rashad Penny was your first round pick three years ago. This team does not have a lot of young ascending players. When you've drafted those sorts of players without much upside, you realize what the downside is. And that's where they are right now. And the Jamal Adams trade is one of those moves that in the moment you're like, oh, this is so fun. Absolutely. They're a contender. They're going to be picking in the 20s. Let's fucking do this. It's now 
the Seahawks are kind of in that morning after mode where you had one too many and somehow you all your money is gone. And even though it seemed fun in the moment, you wake up and you're like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. That's kind of where the Seahawks are right now after the offseason that they had. Yeah, and the, the draft pick thing is is a great point because you're not going to hit on every pick. But man, if you know, if one of those guys was just like a great wide receiver, you know, I don't know. You could pick your spot, a great offensive lineman, a great wide receiver, a great pass rusher. You know, they're, they're kind of even cornerback. I mean, yeah, Shaq Griffin's a, a free agent. Quentin Dunbar is a free agent. Like yep. they got a, they, they don't have anything at the cornerback position. They don't have pass rush on this team. We saw it. I mean, Jamal Adams kind of gave them that and they blitzed more than they typically do for a Pete Carroll offense. And then there's going to be a bill to pay with Jamal Adams too, right? I mean, the contract has not that hasn't been worked out yet. So like that's that's another thing you kind of have to figure out as well. So I don't think it's panic mode. I mean, it's crazy because it's just like Pete Carroll, Russell Wilson, your floor is going to be pretty good, right? I, I mean, no one's expecting this team to win like six games next year or be a complete disaster. But like as every year passes, the quarterback gets older. You have a season like this where you win 12 games, you win the division, you're getting a home playoff game. They, you know, there's no dominant team in the NFC. Like this was a year where they really had an opportunity, I feel like, if they were able to figure some things out offensively, if they were uh, able to get some contributions from, you know, some of those players that you mentioned earlier and you didn't get it. So now you have to kind of look ahead and figure out what you're going to do. You know, I don't think they're going to drastically change their philosophy. I think we know that by now, but they did, you know, if you're a Seahawks fan looking for a silver lining, they took a crazy step forward with kind of not just going run, run, pass and uh, really focusing on the run game. Now, is that going to last for next year and the year beyond? We, we don't know that but um you know at least they showed a flexibility that quite honestly i didn't think they had this they were going to have at this stage in carol's career it's a step in the right direction but i think what happened over the second half of the season is concerning and yeah. when you think about the way they've distributed their resources and the fact that russell wilson is a 32 million dollar quarterback you need to maximize him in order to be a successful nfl team with a quarterback on a second contract you need that quarterback to be the best version of himself that is, it's almost a necessity when you've paid that guy. You think about all the teams that are contenders right now that we think could win the Super Bowl. Teams like the Bills, the Chiefs, the Packers. Their quarterback is playing as they are getting every ounce out of those guys. I know Josh Allen hasn't gotten paid, but the Chiefs and the Packers, for example. That's ne it's a necessity. It is a thing you need to check off. And right now, in the second half of the season, they were not getting the most out of Russell Wilson with the construction of that offense. And I think that is the number one priority you have to have, is figuring out how we can make him a $32 million player. Yeah. And you, and you want a, I mean, even their players, you know, talked about this, like you want someone who can adjust on the fly. Yeah. Oh, the Rams are coming out and doing this. Like, I don't know. Did you feel confident that they were going to be able to match wits with the Rams in that game? You know, Tyler Lockett was saying things like defenses were doing things we weren't expecting. That always makes the, you know, antennae go, go yep. up a little bit, <laughs> a little bit, you know, you want the coach who said, who says, all right, they're doing this. We weren't expecting it. We're going to come back and do this. There are a lot of smart offensive coaches who do that. Uh, I don't know that, you know, Schottenheimer is necessarily that guy for them. All right, let's move on to my Chicago Bears. I've had this conversation so many times on the show about what I think they should do. I, I'm a, I am definitely on Team Blow It Up. I am the captain of Team Blow It Up because I just don't know what the, the avenues out of this look like. And I've been saying that since June. You know, you start to think about it. It's like, all right, well, 
if they bring Nagy and Pace back and, you know, maybe they franchise Allen Robinson and they sign Mitchell Trubisky on a one-year deal, and then you start going down that road, then you think about the realities of that plan. They have no money. Okay, they're up against the cap. Some of their contracts are horrifying. And, and there are guys hitting free agency. You know, guys like Roy Robertson Harris and Mario Edwards. And you think, oh, does that really matter? But that's the meat of this roster. That's the connective tissue of the roster. J- Jermaine Effetti is hitting free agency. He's not good, but you don't have a guard. Alex Bars, who's the fill-in right guard, now that Effetti is at right tackle, is also a free agent. So it's just, there's so many holes they need to plug without resources to plug them. And when that's the, the place that you're in, it's just better to start over. When you're trying to play Tetris and it's all starting to fall on you, just turn the game off and restart. Like that's where they need to be. So I, that's my stance on this. And that's always what it's been. Where do you sit on the Bears? Because you've had some thinking about this too. I know that you guys did right. the Kevin and Bo and Zach. Right. I think went back and forth, yeah. and you were the moderator. So yeah. you've thought about this. Where do <laughs> yeah. you stand on the direction you think the Bears need to go this offseason? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I don't know how you could look at it any other way. You know, unless you're just saying we want to be competitive. Like, could they make the playoffs next year with a couple moves? Yeah, absolutely, they could make the playoffs. But there's no path that offers a high ceiling in the short term. Uh, I mean, I, I honestly, there, there's nothing they can do barring, uh, you just like get a Justin Herbert in the first, you stumble upon a, you know, a first round quarterback and he ends up being like Justin Herbert, like in 2021. But I mean, that, that is luck. That's not a plan. That's something you could hope for. So now when you're picking 20th, you know, Mac Jones is your best option. And I'm not sure Mac Jones is going to be Justin Herbert as a rookie. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, I mean, offensively, and this goes to what we were just talking about, I I think there are two paths to success. One is you have the great quarterback who just kind of lifts everyone around him, and it doesn't matter who the offensive coordinator is, really. You're going to have a a pretty high floor there. They obviously don't have that. They don't have an avenue to get to that uh, in the short term. And then the other one is you have the great schemer, you know, the great play caller who says, listen, I can do uh, more with less. Just make a couple tweaks here. Maybe you sign one of these low-level free agents. Maybe, you know, I I don't know. Maybe it is a rookie, whatever. Maybe you take a couple swings and you do that. But, like, they don't have that either, you know? So, and they're bringing back the same coaching staff. So, uh, there's no real path for their offense to be really good next year, as far as I can see. And like you mentioned, I mean, if Allen Robinson is gone, then all of a sudden, look at those weapons. I mean, you know, they are definitely below league average. I don't know if they're the worst in the league or the bottom third, but they are well below league average. And then defensively, you know, you were talking about this uh, earlier this week with, with Nate, but yeah, you can't count on it year to year. And I think specifically with this group, right? Like, I, I mean, it's not like they have a bunch of young players. You know, I, I know Jalen Johnson will be one of them, but it's not like they have a bunch of young players who you look at it and say, these guys are going to take huge leaps next year and you're going to have like a top five defense. So they're kind of stuck in mud. They're in a really uh, tough place where I agree with you. You know, can you get like a tag and trade with Allen Robinson and get some draft picks? You know, I I don't know if they have the cap space to do that right now, but those are the types of things I think they should be thinking about is let's, let's get some resources. Let's get some draft assets here. Let's take a couple of years. You know, I I don't think they're going to be the worst team in the league next year, but they just need a path to kind of, get out of the the mud that they're in right now. If you look at over the cap, they're currently $90,000 over the cap without a quarterback, which is always a good place to be. (laughs) And then, but you look at the money and then you think about some of the little tiny things that can happen. Like Akeem Hicks, for example, 
has a 12, it's $12 million cap hit. It's only $1.5 million in dead money. So you could say, oh, they could save $10 million if they release Akeem Hicks. But then you release Akeem Hicks. Then right. the things that made you good are no longer in place. That is the spot that they're in. Every single step forward is two steps backward. It's just shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. And like you said, they're stuck in mud. And who possibly could have predicted this except <laughs> every single person with a brain? It's And that is the spot that they're in. And it's interesting because you don't know how much to project forward because you have no idea what you're projecting with. Is Ryan Pace going to be there? Is Matt Nagy going to be there? I would assume if these guys were getting fired, it probably would have happened yesterday. <laughs> so right. Unless they're I, the Eagles and they want to outdo the Eagles and just wait as long as you can and then fire somebody. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what the plan is. I have no idea what the plan should be because I don't think there's any smart plan outside of just saying, let's hit the eject button. This is what needs to happen. And that's where I'm at. So uh, it's frustrating, but it's a spot that I've gotten very familiar with. Let's talk about a team who's essentially in the exact opposite position of the Chicago Bears. And that is the Indianapolis Colts. They don't have a quarterback under contract for next year either. But now with Anthony Costanzo retiring, they have $72 million in cap space. So it's a slightly different spot for Indianapolis. Obviously, the quarterback is the number one question. I mean, that is easily the biggest thing they have to consider. So in your mind, if you're looking at all the possible directions the Colts could go at quarterback, which I think they are considering every single one of them, what's the one you would like to see? The one I would like to see is them make a move for a guy who could last longer than, you know, one year. So I I would like to see them move on from Phillip Rivers, not because he didn't play well this year. You know, I think that one year experiment probably went as well as anybody could have imagined. But I, I think you look at it next year and you say, all right, he was, you know, they were 16th in uh, passing DVOA this year. He was 19th in QBR. Now he's going to turn 40 next year and you're not going to have the same left tackle. Like, is there a path to real improvement next year with Rivers as your quarterback? The, you know, the more likely scenario is that there's some kind of decline and the offense is, isn't as good. And it's not like it was great this year. So I don't know if it's Sam Darnold. I don't know if it's Carson Wentz. Uh, those are the types of moves. I, I would like to see them make a move for a guy like that, whoever they think is the best guy, and kind of try to come up with a longer-term plan uh, than the one-year run with Phillip Rivers. I tend to agree with you. I think they need an option that is not Phillip Rivers in some way. I would have a conversation with Philip Rivers and ask what is important to him and how much money he wants to make this year. Yeah. If you can re-sign Philip Rivers on a one-year, $20 million deal and go and go get that number three pick, that's the one that would be available if Miami wants to deal it. If they don't end up going to trade for Deshaun Watson, which I don't think is going to happen. I think the Colts are the perfect team because they have so much young talent because they've stockpiled picks. They haven't traded anything away on purpose that could make a move to go get that pick. You pick a Trey Lance or a Zach Wilson or Justin Fields or whoever's there. You bring Rivers back as your bridge guy. You don't plan on maybe starting him the whole season, but I think having him in the building to mentor that guy, if you can do it for the right price, I think that is the ideal outcome with the amount of cap space that they have because you're not paying the young quarterback. Your quarterback right. room is still going to cost you about 20 million bucks because Jacoby Brissett is going to be gone now. I would love to see that happen. I think that is the perfect outcome for them. You don't have to press the guy in right away, but if you feel like he's the better guy, we'll see what happens. I think that would make sense to me. I know it seems like a waste of money if that's not if Rivers isn't going to be your guy. I just think that having that, it's the, the Chiefs model. That's exactly what it is. 
And I think, and even maybe this guy doesn't even play next year. Maybe you roll Rivers back for one more season. You let the guy sit. He eventually plays. Chris Ballard was in Kansas City and watched what happened there with Alex Smith. He's very familiar with that model. And I think it makes perfect sense for them. That's the one that I would like to see. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that makes sense too. I think those are their two avenues. If they like, a, if they really like a Wentz or a Darnold, or maybe there's somebody else that I'm not thinking about, then you can that go ahead. That to me is a, is a, that's a lateral move to me from Rivers. That's why I don't really? like those as much. I really do. I don't okay. know how much better Sam Darnold makes you right now than Philip Rivers is going to make you. And I don't know yeah. how high his ceiling is. You could argue that, and I think that Darnold is going to be in a consideration for them. I absolutely do. You could argue that Darnold's high, ceiling is higher because he's young. He's very young. He's so he's the same young, age yeah. essentially as Joe Burrow. Right. But I just think that you're making that move out of convenience. You're buying it because it's on sale. And I just don't know if that's the way I would want to go with it. For Joe Burrow, every every guy, well, you know, this guy's younger than Joe Burrow or the same <laughs> age as Joe Burrow. It gets thrown out there. And yeah, I mean, that that's a case where it depends what what you think of these guys, right? I, I, I would agree with you that you need their ceiling to be high to take a big swing like that. You know, if it's Frank Reich saying, I know exactly how to fix Carson Wentz, uh, trust me on this one. It's it's not a bad move to make. If it's if it's Sam Darnold, they say we love this guy scouting him. He is so young. It might not take a crazy amount to go and get him. I wouldn't have an option. Uh, I wouldn't hate an option like that. But you're right. I mean, you have to weigh those options against what can you get. You know, possibly trading up there and getting one of the quarterbacks in this year's draft. Who, by the way, if it's close, then you do that, right? Because then you're getting the guy on a rookie contract rather than having to pay uh, Wentz this year or pay Darnold in the future. I do look at the roster, and I wonder if the roster is a little bit overrated, though. You know, I, I think I, they've got. I, I wanted to get to that because I completely yeah, okay. agree with you. I'm not, I don't think okay. it's overrated, but I think okay. they have more holes to fill than people tend to think. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I I just kind of look at it. Even this year, I felt like they didn't have that high of a ceiling. You know, they've got studs in DeForest Buckner. Quentin Nelson and Darius Leonard. And then after that, you've got sub dice players, but like wide receiver isn't great. T.Y. Hilton is a free agent. Uh, edge rusher isn't great. Cornerback isn't great. And so when you make a move like that, like you're mentioning now, all right, you trade up to three. Well, now you're giving up some stuff. You're not, you're not drafting uh, for the same volume as you otherwise would have. So those are all the things that they kind of have to think about uh, with their quarterback situation. I think that the resources they have in free agency are going to be really important. I yeah. think they're a team that absolutely could go get an Allen Robinson or a Kenny Galladay or one of these guys that's available. I think if you roll out next year with a free agent wide receiver, whether it's Robinson or Galladay or Will Fuller or whoever, Michael Pittman, Paris Campbell, hopefully back, Jack Doyle, the backs they have, all you need on offense really is a left tackle. I know that's a big thing to ask for with Costanza yeah. retiring. I am so ardently against the Quentin Nelson at left tackle experience. I can't even describe it to you. You get worse in two positions. That is, I hate moving a really good guard to tackle out of convenience. And I don't think they will end up doing that. But I also think that you say that they have a lot of holes, but the guys you listed, I don't think it's an accident. This is a, an organist. This is a roster that is built in an analytically sound way. You have an offensive line that's set. You have a really strong pillar of a defensive lineman. You build up the middle with Blackman and Leonard now. And now you can fill in the pieces defensively with free agents. Yeah. And I think that's what might be happening. I think guys like Richard Sherman are, make, would make a ton of sense for them as like the same role that they had with Xavier Rhodes this year. Zone heavy. He's a guy that knows exactly where he needs to be. More cover two than he's typically played in his career. Right. But I still think he would be a great presence that's a free agent possibly. 
I think that Trent Williams, if he ends up getting to the market, I would throw all the money at him because those are the spots they need. Corner, left tackle, edge rusher, like you said, and wide receiver. So I think they have a lot of money to be able to go grab a couple of these guys possibly if they don't end up having to pay a quarterback or whatever it happens. So even though they have a lot of holes, they have also a ton of resources to possibly fill those holes. So I think that it's not as complete of a roster as you think it is, but it's foundationally sound and they can make it better, unlike some of the other teams on this list, including the one we're about to get to. The Pittsburgh Steelers, unlike the Colts, are $25 million over the cap right now. That number shrinks if they move on from Ben Roethlisberger, obviously. It's a $41 million hit if he's on the roster. If he retires, it's $20 million. I'm taking the $20 million and running if I'm <laughs> yeah. Kevin Colbert and the Steelers right now. Yeah. Outside of that... There's a ton of more, a ton more questions. Your left tackle is a free agent. You have two starting defensive backs that are free agents. One of your starting guards is a free agent. So even if they move on from Roethlisberger and they get to that $175 million number, there are still a ton of holes that they need to fill. But if we're sticking to the quarterback for a second, in my opinion, this is the Sam Darnold team. Because you can trade what is likely a pretty low price pick for a guy that's making $4.7 million. Again, if you're thinking about the quarterback room as a price tag, you got $20 million going to Roethlisberger even if he's gone. Darnold's base salary next year is only $4.7 million. You can decline his fifth-year option. If he's good, you franchise him in 2021 when your money situation's a little bit better. If he's bad, you move on and you try to figure it out elsewhere. But I think he is a cheap option that would make sense for them if they end up moving on from Roethlisberger. But, but, but it's, it's Roethlisberger's decision, right? I mean, if Roethlisberger says, I want to keep playing, you don't have an option, right? I mean, th- this is what they've sort of, this is the situation. I think you in. strongly recommend that you do not want him to do that. <laughs> I, I, that's the tough part yeah. when you have a, a guy who has been a fixture right. of your franchise. But if I, if I were the Roonies, I, I would sit down with Ben and, and thank him for his service and give him a spot with the organization, whatever you want to do in order to get that $41 million cap hit off the books. And I would not negotiate it down and push those mo- that money into further years because that's its own problem. Right. So yeah, those are, those are their options. Just let it play out with him, right, for 2021. Uh, extend him to kind of get some cap relief in the short term and just kick the can down the road or just talk him into retirement. And yeah, I mean, you look at it and you look at the way their season ended and really their offense the entire year and their passing game specifically. And to have a $41 million cap hit for like a a passing offense that's not in the top top half of the league. I mean, that is really, uh, really tough to to swallow. I I like that idea a lot for um, Sam Darnold. Now, do you kind of what about like a Matthew Stafford here? I mean, uh, now they probably can't afford it. They, they, okay, can't, afford they it. can't afford it. Yeah. That's the problem is your options are yeah. so limited that I think that's why, like we said, you're shopping right. the bargain yeah. bin. You're buying it because it's on sale. They need a quarterback that's on yeah. sale. And I think that's why Darnold makes sense for them. I wrote that as one of the teams for Darnold when I wrote about it in November. And I didn't have any inside info. I didn't talk to anybody there, unlike some of the other teams. But I still think it would make sense for them. The other thing is if they move on from Roethlisberger, I think you could see a potential reset in the offensive staff because that does seem like it also could be an issue. And Fickner is a Roethlisberger guy. I mean, he's been there forever. He was Roethlisberger's quarterback's coach. When they moved on from Todd Haley, I think they gave Randy that job in part because of the relationship he had with Roethlisberger and their history together and the fact that Roethlisberger has so much autonomy over that offense. If you're going to move on to a different quarterback, I think 
kind of hitting the reset button saying it's time for us to go in a different direction entirely on offense would actually make a lot of sense. I mean, that would be a scenario to, to I feel like you should be excited about it if you're a Steelers fan, you know, if they were able to get, if they traded for a Darnold and then maybe if you hit on that offensive coordinator spot, because again, defense, we don't know, but like, you know, they've got players up front and certainly on defense and you figure that they're going to be pretty good there and you've got Minka Fitzpatrick on the back end, you're probably going to lose Juju Smith-Schuster, but you still have an above average uh, receiving core with potential offensive line is a bit of a question, but like they could be sort of a very different, but a frisky and competitive team next year. I feel like with a lot of the the talent they had there, but I mean, this was just their year to make one last run with Roethlisberger, right? I mean, they had... it was the best version yes, of their roster yeah. because you have Trey Edmonds as a free right. agent. Mike Hilton is a free agent. Again, losing the connective tissue yeah. of your roster as these guys get a little bit more yeah. expensive. There are some spots where they're ready. You know, they have Alex Highsmith to come in and step in for Bud right. Dupree. I think that is an understandable succession plan. Same goes with all of the receivers kind of stepping right. in for Juju. You have Deontay Johnson. You have uh, James Washington. You have Clay- Chase Claypool. Those are That's a group you can win with. So I agree. I think that they're set up to keep this going a little bit if they make the right tweaks. And I just think that Roethlisberger should not be part of that plan. We'll see what happens, though. Because, yeah. again, he probably gets to go out on his own terms. I think he's I was going to say, yeah, if I had to peg it, I would I would think they're going to be running it back with him. But uh, who knows? You know, that, that certainly could change. <laughs> you look so sad. Not you just, exciting. <laughs> not exciting. It, it's just because I, I think that you, know, you have guys, that front is coming back outside of yeah. Dupree. And that group is still dominant. You're going to get Devin Bush back, stuff like that. You can try to piece the secondary together. If you look at it, Steven Nelson makes a ton of money. They have a lot of expensive guys on this roster that you don't think about outside of Roethlisberger even. But I still think the defense has a chance to be really good. I also think you know, Keith Butler's done a solid job there. It could be time to hit the reset button there too, to look for some new ideas and kind of refresh things because they've been really static on both sides of the ball for a while. And I think that we've seen this happen in the past, you know, the Brams just did this, where you have a head coach at the center of things, brings in a new offensive coordinator and a new defensive coordinator in the same year, and I think you've seen some of the benefits from making those sorts of drastic decisions. They're hard to make sometimes, but sometimes when you're trying to usher in a new era, which the Steelers might be doing if Roethlisberger moves on, I think those should be things that they have to consider. Yeah, it, a reset sort of evaluating everything across the board in the event that Roethlisberger's is not coming back. That, that makes perfect sense to me. All right, let's move on to the Tennessee Titans, a team that is most likely going to have to consider that reset. I would bet any money that Arthur Smith is not going to be there next year. He's interviewing for every single one of these head coaching jobs. He's likely going to get one of them. And this is an experiment in the types of coaches that you hire, because I don't know if their offense is ever going to be as good as it was over the last two years. If they finish fourth in offensive DVOA this year, Tannehill finished second in EPA per play among quarterbacks. They staved off that regression that we all thought was coming. And I think they did it in large part because Arthur Smith is a wonderful offensive coach. If you lose him, now you wonder if it's ever going to be as good as it was. And if it's not as good as it was, how do you build up other spots of your roster and other elements of your team to make up for that? And you're in that mode that teams don't want to be in where you're trying to put out all these little fires and play whack-a-mole with areas of your roster because you're not maximizing your offense. I think that is the looming concern for this team. Absolutely. You want to look at it and say their offense was lights out the entire year. And if you can choose anything that's going to be 
lights out that you're bringing back, that would be it. I mean, when they signed Tannehill and Henry, it was what a two or three year commitment there. And so you would think that you're in good shape, especially when you do, like you said, you didn't experience that regression that many of us expected. I think it's very interesting right now, though, looking at this scheme, you know, your, your favorite scheme, uh, across, across the league, because if I think history has proven me <laughs> right here, but well, yeah, way. no, I mean, it, it's been great, but I think this is really interesting when you look at some of the head coach openings and even a team like Tennessee, I feel like if you are a team that has the CEO type head coach or the defensive minded head coach, you should be benefiting right now from having this tightened scheme because I mean, those assistants are just like, you know, they're all over the league right now. You know, I know some are better than others and you have to evaluate everyone and you want a guy who can adjust. But man, Green Bay, Tennessee, San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles, Minnesota, Cleveland. Cleveland. So you're talking about like a quarter of the league. I know they're all not the same and everyone has to put their own stamp on it. But when you're just looking at who you would want to run that offense with Tannehill and Henry. Obviously, you do not want to change the offensive foundation, the philosophy, the scheme there. And so it it should be easier, I would think, to find your next coach in waiting there, your next play caller in waiting. That might is probably not giving enough credit to the job that Arthur Smith has done. But I think that's something interesting to look at when you look at some of these coaches that are going to be hired, defensive-minded head coaches, even a guy like Robert Sala, right? Is he going to be able to just... Uh, pluck Mike LaFleur and say, let, you know, let's go run that scheme where I'm at, because then you kind of always have to have that next play caller in mind when you have a defensive minded head coach like the Titans do. And like some of these other teams might have. So Pat O'Hara is their quarterbacks coach. He came from Houston where Mike Vrabel was before he got this job. So that's the connection there. Todd Downing is their tight ends coach. He has play calling experience. He was in Oakland. I know know, he's a really important factor in what that staff looks like and what that offense looks like. I think they'll probably get both of those guys looks. Arthur Smith was the tight ends coach. You remember that. So, and it's Downing and O'Hara don't come from that boot action Shanahan offense, but neither did Arthur Smith and neither did Kevin Stefanski at first. So I think that it's, the kind of flexibility and nimbleness you can have with some of those guys is important. And I completely agree. I think that they should try to tap into the version of their offense they had the same way they did with Smith when he was an assistant under LaFleur and he left. So I think that is something to absolutely look at. It's also funny that when you think about, you just listed all the teams that run this and it's a quarter of the league, it's only going to be more now because Smith is going to get one of these jobs. Sal is probably going to get one of these jobs and he's going to bring that offense with him. We could be at... A third of the league here before it's all said and done. I think maybe even more, which I absolutely support. So this is a team with only $6 million in salary cap space. They are built to win right now. And there are a lot of holes. You know, their defense has been objectively bad. I think they're going to hire a defensive coordinator next year. You know, I think Vrabel kind of alluded to that. Um, Shane Bowen was their kind of de facto defense coordinator this year. He called the plays, everything else. We'll see what they end up doing there. Defense, they need a pass rusher in the worst way. I mean, that's absolutely the number one thing that they need. They finished 31st in pressure rate this season. Uh, I think they finished 28th in total pressures. They 100% need somebody in that role. They don't have a lot of avenues to find that person because of the resources. I don't know what they're going to end up doing with some of the more expensive corners they have. Uh, Adoree Jackson and Malcolm Butler both make double-digit millions of dollars when you have the 31st ranked defense in the league by DVOA might be worth considering if you want to keep doing that. So that's something you'll have to think about. Also, Corey Davis, John U. Smith, Anthony Ferks are all free agents. So 
when you're thinking about, is the offense ever going to be this good again? It's not just Arthur Smith as a consideration. It's all of the kind of subtle pieces that allowed you to be this offense and trying to replace some of those guys as they get priced out of your roster. So these are the things that the Titans are going to have to think about as they move into 2020. It's a it's a big I mean you look at their offseason last year it was kind of low key a disaster, you know, like Isaiah Wilson, if that was in a bigger market, I just like I I looked at that like halfway through the season, I'm like, "Wait, what is going on with this guy?" You know, he played 3 snaps did you see that they asked Vrabel about it? And he was like, your guess is as oh, good really? as mine. No, I, <laughs> yes. that's not good. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, he had a DUI before the season. He played three snaps the entire year. He was on the COVID list. Then he was on the whatever, one of those other, I, I, the non, was it non-football injury, whatever it was. I mean, that was your first round pick. And, and you know, your uh, tackle goes down and you don't have him there. Vic Beasley, disaster. Jadeveon Clowney, disaster. And so, they face a big offseason here. They needed I just feel like they needed a defensive coordinator who can do more with less. I don't know if this is a Wade Phillips team. I, I don't know if there's any relationship there with Mike Rabel and Wade Phillips, but like that's the kind of guy you would need. You know, a defensive because because like you said, they don't have an avenue to just significantly upgrade the talent on the roster. And last year with Dean Pease, you know, the defense was not great. But the defense was like it took a huge step backwards this year. It went from mediocre to legitimately one of the worst in the league. So I think that to me is a huge hire for them. And it, I mean, if you're changing the the defensive play caller, and then you have to replace Arthur Smith, and now you don't have Corey Davis and, and Johnu Smith. You know, they're not your best players, but they're important players. Like this could be a team. I feel like that next year is the year that they really uh, they do face a lot of that regression. It's a real uphill yeah. battle. I mean, there are just so many things that kind of point to that. And this year it was, is math going to come for them? Because even if it's the same players, some of the things they did are as hard to sustain. Now it's not just math because it's not the same players. It's not the same voices. Their amount of challenges to repeat this are significantly, that list is significantly longer heading into next year than it was yeah. this year. All right. Last one here, the Washington football team, which if you had told me before the year that we were going to do a Washington football team playoff postmortem, I would not have believed you. Obviously, biggest question for them is quarterback. Uh, I think that they will move on from Alex Smith based on some of the conversations I've had. I, even if he's on the roster, I, which I still think doesn't make a lot of financial sense for them. You know, It was a great story, but I do not think he will be the starting quarterback plan for them. I think they are going to look in every nook and cranny possible for the types of guys that are around. Cam Newton has been connected to them a little bit. I know Schefter said that was a reasonable landing point. I think that Cam, uh, with Scott Turner and Ron Rivera, those relationships are good, but I don't know if that's the direction they're going to go in. I think that they end up going a different direction at quarterback than Cam Newton. The question is who that guy is. I think all options are on the table for them, whether it's Matthew Stafford, you know, somebody like that. This is a team that really can go any way it wants at that position. And I think they'll consider all I think Stafford, this is a really interesting Stafford landing spot, I think. I totally I mean, agree. You know, I mentioned him earlier in the show, but then I also wrote him down uh, for for Washington here. You know, the Ros- it's not like the roster's loaded. It's not like they're going to win the Super Bowl next year, but the defensive line is very good. The defense might not be as good next year. Like I, I know you guys were talking about earlier this week, but it's still, I feel like has a high floor with that. You know, that they know what they're doing with that scheme, uh, playing a lot of zone coverage and, and they have the guys up front offensively. They just need a, a influx of talent, but they certainly could be a team that shops in the wide receiver market, right? They could get one of these top 
Absolutely. four or five guys, and you add one of those guys with Terry McLaurin, and you acquire Matthew Stafford. You have a you know you have an interesting team. I feel like for the next three years or so, and so that that to me uh, would be a very interesting addition for them, and that that would be something I would look into if I were them is to take a big swing. And you know the division obviously was terrible this year. Is it going to be significantly better next year? You know the Cowboys should probably be uh, back in the mix, but certainly it's not like you're in a division with the Chiefs or something. You know, so you can kind of turn this thing around uh, really quickly. You made a bigger step than you thought you would make this year if you fix the quarterback position. Add a wide receiver, maybe upgrade the talent on the the offensive line. Brandon Scherf is a free agent. They have to make a decision there, but uh, they could kind of be an interesting team, I feel like, and not just in sort of that old Washington take a big swing and it you know it's terrible and you have this year that everyone saw coming that you're the offseason champs, but it could be like a nice sort of setup for the next few years, I feel like. I think if they get Stafford, they become interesting. And the, yeah. I think the wide receiving core and the weapons is the next consideration. Now, this is a team that thought about Amari Cooper this year and eventually decided that it didn't fit with their timeline, which is kind of funny now because if Amari Cooper was on this team with Terry McLaurin and then you trade for Matthew Stafford, now it's suddenly pretty interesting. But I, I think in the moment, it was the right choice. I think a guy to watch with them that would make perfect sense to me is Curtis Samuel. Mm. He's hitting free agency. He was with Turner in Carolina. I think he's the exact type of guy they love on all of that jet motion and just the eye candy that that offense is predicated on. I think a guy like that plus another outside option and left tackle is a huge question for them. You know, do they, where do they go? Do, and then Scherf. So those two spots along the offensive line and in the back seven, you know, Ronald Darby is a free agent. He played well for them in what was a prove it, you know, kind of stopgap contract. What sort of bodies do they add back there? They're getting Landon Collins back. So they have a lot of flexibility. And I think the quarterback is at the center of this, but a left tackle and some weapons is the next thing I think they kind of have to address. Yeah, Samuel is an interesting free agent because I just feel like on the wrong team, he's going to be a disaster. And in the, you know, on the right team, he's going to be a lot of fun because it it sort of felt like Joe Brady unlocked him more than, you know, that Panthers coaching staff did previously before he was there. But yeah, I think they definitely obviously need some help with with Terry McLaurin there. We'll see what happens. You know, I think that, what, t- what Nate and I were talking about is that you can't just say the defense is good. Let's, we need to right. bottle the defense. That's not a given. You can't treat that as a given. But that doesn't mean you don't have good defensive pieces. It just means that if you're thinking about the trajectory of this team, you can't say this is a top five defense. Let's treat that as a given and think about everything else. That is where you get into trouble. As long as you understand we have good defensive players Let's think about where we can get better. And that is your thought process. That's totally fine. But saying we were a top five defense this year, it's only going to get better from here. That's where fan bases and organizations even get themselves into trouble. As long as you're not thinking that way, you can be excited about the guys you have in the uh, in the front. Yeah, it's proven year after year, right? I mean, we, we see it every year that it's very rare for the same defense to be in the top three, the top five for a two, three year stretch. New teams emerge teams fall off. It's just more volatile that, you know, the numbers have kind of uh, bore that out over the years. So I agree with you now, having said that, you know, they, they should be excited about that, that defensive line and chase young in year two and all that and, and players uh, adapting to the scheme. But I agree with you. you. You cannot build your team that way. All right, buddy. That's all we got. I always appreciate the time. Always good to chat with you. Thank you so much for doing this. I am sure we will chat here very soon. Thank you, sir. Good being here. All right, guys, that's all we got. Thank you so much to Peter King for coming on. Thank you to Shield for his time. We will be back tomorrow 
with Nate and Lindsay for our typical Thursday show, previewing the divisional round. So many good games. I am so excited to dig into this. Really appreciate the time. Please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I would sincerely appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Also, please subscribe to The Athletic. It's $3.99 a month right now. I've got a couple things coming later in the week that I'm excited about. It's playoff time. So much good stuff that we're pumping out on that site. Shield, Mike Sando, Lindsay, all the stuff Ted Wynn is doing. Please get your subscription. I promise you won't regret it. We'll be back tomorrow. Thank you so much for the time. We'll talk to you guys later. This was The Athletic Football Show.